you could put all the wonders of the world into one place, you'd end up with something very much like Key Largo. Key Largo is not only the gateway to the Keys, it's the launching point for the untamed Florida Everglades. In fact, from snorkeling our living coral reef to fly fishing the Everglades backcountry, Key Largo offers the best of both worlds. For more about Key Largo and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash Key Largo. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we got a lot of topics to discuss, including the MLB lockout, some reported signings that the Orioles made before the lockout went into effect, an injury update on Reed Trimble, and more. That'll all be on tonight's episode. But first, On the Birds is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. Now, as some of, your, some of our listeners know, we do have a Patreon community. We're very uh, appreciative of our patrons and their loyal support of the podcast. And we've got a couple new members to shout out this week. So I'll turn that over to Bob. Yeah, there's a couple here. We got two of them. First up is Adam Baker, who is my buddy. And he happens to be in Disney World right now. So unfortunately, he's probably missing out on his moment here. But he'll check it out, I'm sure, down the line. And also, we have Nicholas Cecier. Sorry, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Nick. Uh, you're a good follow on Twitter. Good guy out there. So appreciate you. Thank you both for your support. And uh, you can join our patron community at any time um, throughout the offseason here. And we'll get into the lockout, um, which took effect last week, as was expected, uh, as the players union and the owners could not agree to a renewal of the collective bargaining agreement or a new collective bargaining agreement before the deadline and the owners have imposed a lockout. This has frozen all transactions across major league baseball that affect the 40 man roster. So trades involving the 40 man major league free agent signings are all on hold until the lockout ends. Uh, There are still minor league signings allowed. And in addition, the minor league phase of the rule five draft will still move forward this week. However, the major league phase is on hold indefinitely. So if when that takes place, 
that's when we start getting into the questions of whether the players that were left unprotected, like Nick Vespi, Robert Newstrom, among others in the Orioles farm system, could get taken. But for now, that's further into the offseason, if it happens at all. So the lockout was not a surprise. And if you're watching the live stream of this show, you might be wondering why our cameras are turned off. We just thought for this segment, we would acknowledge uh, MLB.com and all the team websites that have taken the player headshots off the rosters while the lockout is in effect. So we'll uh, take our faces off the screen here for a few minutes. And I'll start with Bob here. Um, The lockout was not a surprise. I think that it was something that we really saw coming certainly over the last few weeks and months, if not years. But now that we're uh, about half a week into it with no end in sight, how are you feeling? For anyone that watches uh, Succession, I feel like Kendall Roy did in the end of last night's episode, just uh, laying in the pool, face down, no underwater. No spoilers. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's just say he's a sad, sad guy right there. So uh, I kind of feel like that, just waiting for it to end, you know, going through the motions. What is life without Major League Baseball? No, it's uh, we knew it was coming and. It's it sucks, but we know it's temporary. We know they're not going to lose out on the money, especially after they lost out on the pandemic shortened season and then limited crowds last year. So it's only a matter of time. Hopefully the the players get at least some of what they want, and it's you know the game is better for it in the long run. Yeah, I think the game might look a little different uh, and might take some adjustment from the fans for sure. But I agree. I hope the players get. Everything they want here. I mean, I don't really have many other thoughts at this point. I know a lot of other baseball podcasts. This is pretty much all there is to talk about at this point. Um, you know, it's I don't see an agreement being reached anytime soon. I would guess it's, you know, mid to late February. That's going to be my guess. Um, you know, it's making fans angry at the game again. Uh, and it's really hurting the players that can't be around the facilities. They can't work out with their instructors. Uh, the longer this goes on, I think the bigger the, bigger the impact it's going to have on these players when the season starts, like, to keep it Orioles focused, like DL Hall just picked up a baseball and threw it for the first time in what six months, he said. So, I mean, he can't be in Sarasota working out. Um, guy like Kyle Bradish could start the year in Baltimore's rotation or a few weeks into the season, he could be in that rotation. He's locked out now that he's been added to the 40 man as well. Like, you look at the younger group of guys on the Orioles roster Mountcastle, Mullins, Means, Hayes, like they're back to working on their own. And then that pitch, those pitchers, Aiken, Kramer, Bauman, Wells, Lowther, like. We were hoping so much to get something out of them last year. We didn't. Uh, and now maybe next year there's a little something there, but now they're locked out. So what kind of impact is this going to have on those players the longer this goes on? I'm, I'm kind of afraid to find out, to be honest. I mean, for right now, I'm not too concerned about the loss of games. Um, I'll wait until you know we are a few weeks or a little more than a month into this before I start worrying about the potential loss of games. But Nick, I think you bring up a good point, which is, you know, the amount of time that these players are going to be locked out of these facilities, how long is that going to last? And is that going to have any sort of effect into the season? I really hope not because, you know, injuries in general are a bad thing, but I especially don't want to have the 2022 season marked by injuries when it seemed like we were seeing more injuries pop up across the league last year as MLB went from the 60-game pandemic sort in 2020 season into the full season in 2021. And to have two years of play like that, I do think would be bad for the sport. 
Yeah. I mean, a team like the Orioles too, you look at this squad and they're all so young. They're all, they all need experience. And we've seen the impact that these instructors and the Orioles developmental plans have on these players. And if you can't have access to any instructor. There can be no communication there. I mean, then these guys, these guys just have to go off, you know, what they did last year. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to some of these guys and find out what are they doing on their own. Uh, I would love to know, but I mean, for right now, it's, you just had 2020 wiped away for a lot of these guys, <clears throat> like Kyle Bradish, Deal Hall. They didn't get to play at all uh, in 2020, except at the alt site. And so now you're missing a key offseason in their development. It just, it just sucks, and it's it's extremely frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a little bit of an advantage over the other, you know, baseball podcasts and writers out there because we're minor leagues, and that's not affected. So even if it goes into the season, at least we'll have games to cover. But just overall, it's it's. It's not good, especially for, like you guys have noted multiple times now, just the guys that are just recently added to the 40-man or just the young players in general. They have, they're have they basically just ships drifting in the night now. There's no, uh, They have no lighthouse or whatever to guide them on what to do or where to go. Well, hopefully we see an end to the lockout sooner rather than later. But um, as we've kind of talked about here, no reports at this point on when it could end. Um, hopefully we get to a point where maybe by – Late January, early February, we can start to talk about an agreement or something close to an agreement. But for now, it's just a waiting game. And as we go through the waiting game here, one thing that is out there is that shortly before the lockout went into effect, the Orioles were reportedly came to agreement with Rugnet Odor and Jordan Lyles. Uh, Lyles would slot into the starting rotation while Odor would seemingly be the favorite to be the everyday second baseman next year, though he does offer the option of playing third base as well. Neither of those deals were completed before the lockout went into effect. However, the expectation is that once the lockout is lifted, they will become official. There's nothing at this point indicating that those deals would somehow fall through. So we'll start with Lyles because Nick actually wrote an interesting piece over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com talking about his season last year and what he means to the Orioles rotation, which seemingly is not that much, but then at the same time, we know that with how bad the rotation was in 2021, anything resembling five to six innings of keeping you into the, in the game as a starter is an upgrade. And Nick, in sort of looking in the Lyles more, do you think he's at least that kind of pitcher? I mean, when you look at the Orioles rotation last year, uh, I mean, Jordan Lyles is like the number two on this roster, as depressing as that sounds. Uh, and I know a lot of fans did not like this, seeing the outrage uh, on social media and such. But you know, the offseason isn't, well, there really is no offseason right now because of the lockout. Uh, there are still plenty of quality free agents out there. Uh, does this mean the Orioles are going to continue to spend? I don't know. We can talk about that. But uh, Lyles is at least, you know, I know there's not a lot of great things to look at, but it was I'm trying to find the numbers here in the article that I wrote. Um, it was like almost 50% of his starts were quality starts. I mean, you didn't see that from Orioles starters. He had about the same quality start percentage as John Means did last year. Um, and then when you look at the changes he made, um, here are the numbers. Uh, 15 and eight, 18 of his 32 appearances last season, uh, he went six innings, something Orioles starters don't do. Uh, 15 of those 18 outings, he gave up less than three runs. So pretty solid there. Um, and then when you look at late in the season, his September, he was actually extremely dominant in September. 
31 and third innings, 2.87 ERA, a .99 whip, only two home runs. I know he led the league in home runs last year. Only two home runs in more than 31 innings last season in September. And the big thing that I found was like the slider. It is a brand new slider that he went in the lab and created uh, with some help. And the slider was just absolutely ridiculous, the results he got on that pitch last year. So maybe that's something. That's a bright spot to look at because I just couldn't write an article about being angry about the Jordan Lyles signing. So I found one positive. Yeah, I was just happy because I went to bed that night thinking, all right, we're in the lockout. The Orioles didn't do anything. And I woke up and saw, oh, we signed a starting pitcher for $7 million. Wow, that's great. And he's not Matt, not Matt Harvey, so that's even better. Uh, yeah, he's a guy that's going to eat some innings. And if he can provide you an upper fours, lower fives, ERA, 160 or so innings, that's pretty valuable, especially for the bullpen. As as we've said, you know, is that why Tanner Scott and Paul Fry fell apart a little bit? Because they were overused in the first half of the year? Maybe. Will this help? Maybe, maybe not. But it's it's better, than, in my opinion, than bringing Matt Harvey back on another cheap deal or your Felix Hernandez of the world. So get another one or two of these guys in. And now we're talking. I think one of the things that we focused on a lot last year was getting certain pitchers off that Norfolk shuffle, in particular, Alexander Wells and Zach Lothar. So honestly, if Lyles comes in and he has an ERA in the high fours, lows fives, but he gives you 185, 190 innings, takes the ball every fifth day and kind of alleviates the pressure on the guys that have to go back and forth between Baltimore and Norfolk throughout the season, I think that's a win. You pair that with a healthy John Means, and the Orioles' rotation does take a modest step forward. It's not enough. But if you want to look at someone to really kind of hold down the second or third spot in the rotation while you're developing the Grayson Rodriguez's, Michael Ballman's, Kyle Bradis's of the world, and while you're trying to figure out what roles you have for Zach Lothar, Alexander Wells, and Bruce Zimmerman, who missed a lot of time last year because of injury. I think that Lyles can help. Yeah, I agree with that. That's the part that I like about this. And you're going to need more than just one Jordan Lyles and John Means in your rotation. You're going to need more. But you bring in more guys like Lyles. Not Matt Harvey, I think the Orioles were extremely lucky and caught lightning in that bottle that one time with him. Uh, Felix Hernandez, I mean, that was just a mileage issue. That arm was dead just because he's been throwing 200 plus innings since he was like 18 years old in the pros. Uh, that was never going to work out. You bring in more guys like Lyles, you let, you know, maybe you send Michael Bauman start the year in AAA. Um, well, he's on the 40 minute roster, so depending on how long this lockout lasts, he may not be able to, but maybe you start Bauman back in AAA, let him settle in a little bit more, work out some kinks, then bring him up. You let these prospects marinate as long as possible before they're fully ready. You don't have to bring up more Connor Wades and such to make these spot stars and get shelled. Uh, and Lyles, like he's an 11 year veteran. I mean, I've have a, the only memory I have of Jordan Lyles is he almost threw the first no hitter in San Diego Padres history. So there we go. That's that's a pos- another positive. Am I wrong in thinking that he spent two or three years in Korea or Japan or something like that and then came back? I don't I, know. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think he did, but. Oh. That's my recollection. <laughs> I, I thought I remember the, the Brewers signing him from overseas, but I could certainly be wrong about that. Well, I'll but, look uh, into that, but uh, we'll take this question from Vivek. Do you think the Orioles had to pay more than other teams would have had in order to bring Lyles to Baltimore? Just to give context, Lyles is on a one-year $7 million deal that will cover 2022, plus an $11 million club option for 2023. So the sense that maybe... Flyball pitcher who gives up a lot of home runs 
having to come to a home run hitter's park um, and pitch for a bad team. Did the Orioles have to pay a little bit more than, say, the Twins getting Bill and Dylan Bundy for $5 million? And I think, Nick, you had this in this piece, your piece that the Red Sox signed Michael Waka for the same amount of money the Orioles are going to pay Jordan Wiles next year. So on the surface, it does look like an overpay, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. I personally think maybe they paid up to a million more than maybe than they would have had to. But, I mean, maybe it's just the Orioles needed Jordan Lyles more than a lot of other teams needed Jordan Lyles. And, and he thought, you know, he obviously he decided to sign his contract right at the last second before the lockout started. So he said, I'll take my chances now rather than waiting till you know, waiting till the last second right at spring training, whenever that's going to be. So, yeah, maybe we paid a little bit extra, but I think it, the fit was there. I don't think it was much more. Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, I don't really know how much more you have to pay guys. <laughs> but at the same time, like I imagine if you you offer some guy like Lyles a free agent contract and you say, hey, you're going to be a number two or number three in our rotation. You're going to be the veteran uh, on that rotation. Maybe that a- appeals to some guys and they're going to enjoy that. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a, an opportunity for Lyles to just kind of hang back and relax a little bit. No pressure in Baltimore. Um, I don't know, but it is, it is kind of weird to see like Dylan Bundy get only 5 million from the twins and Jordan or else have to pay $7 million for Lyles. Probably see how the rest of the market shakes out when this lockout is over. But I imagine it was probably a a slight overpay, but maybe not much. And also like the salaries are rising. I mean, this is going to be the cost of a guy who threw 180 innings last year. He's a stable, relatively stable veteran pitcher. I mean, he's, you got to fork over some money for it. Yeah, I do think you would have had teams paying up to get the innings, and who knows? Maybe the Orioles really saw something in that last month that made them think that this was worth the investment. That will that remains to be seen, and hopefully they wouldn't read too much in the one month. But the way he ended the year was encouraging, and I'm also wondering, too, what's going to happen with the CBA and the question of the salary floor? Because if a salary floor is, in fact, implemented, you're going to see a lot more deals like this, especially that club option for 2023 where Lyles would be making $11 million. Right now, I would say that that's a lot of money, probably way too much money to pay for a starter like a Jordan Lyles. But by that point, the free agent market might be where, you know, $11 million for basically a guy who to a contending team is a back-end starter that eats innings. It's about $11 million to be the going rate. Could be. I mean, especially if teams are if teams have an idea that like this salary floor is definitely coming, that could be it. Um, I mean, I know I kind of looked at it as like that's kind of like what I do if like I'm playing OOTP and I want that free agent. I'll just be like, I'll give you fifty million dollars as an option for next year, uh, and maybe try to like cheat the algorithm or something. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. But I mean, if I mean, we're not paying eleven million dollars for Jordan Lyles next year on that option, I I hope. Yeah, I would think uh, we have a better chance of pitching for the Orioles in 2023 than Jordan Lyles. But, yeah, yeah, there might be a case there that maybe there's hints that there's going to be a salary floor or at least some kind of way that it's going to force teams to spend a little bit more money, and they're just jumping out ahead of that. And I just looked it up. Jordan Lyles was pitching for Colorado, so pretty much the same as the international uh, market there. <laughs> so we'll pivot now to the Rugnet Odora signing. Or Odora signs a major league deal. Now, the financial stakes are not as significant as they are with Lyles because Odora is on the final year of a six-year contract extension that he signed with the Texas Rangers. Um, So the Rangers are actually going to be paying Odora's salary. The Orioles will be paying the league minimum. 
um, whatever that turns out to be for 2022. Odor was with the Yankees last year. Numbers weren't great. Um, expectation, I think, was that he might really take the Yankee Stadium and hit for more power. And although he was slightly better than he had been in the shortened 2020 season, he still batted just 202 with 15 homers and 100 strikeouts in 361 plate appearances with the Yankees last year. Um, the Orioles obviously have some holes in the infield, and Odor being just 27, showing a little bit of left-handed power throughout his career, makes him kind of an interesting fit, although you know, obviously not someone who's going to dramatically change the course of the Orioles' season. So, Bob, I'll start with you here. Your thoughts on the Odor signing and how he fits into the Orioles? Yeah, that was definitely a surprise. And quickly, uh, I thought before he shaved his beard, he was 35. And then after he shaved his beard, he was 15. So it's nice to know he's right in the middle there, 27. But uh, I think this is more of a, what's his name? Um, God, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's a good Twitter follow. He had a nice thread on this. J.S. Bear, I think, is his uh, at John Shepard. And uh, he had a pretty good thread about this, just saying that it looks like his profile is right in line with what the Orioles are looking for in their minor leaguers when they draft. Someone that hits the ball hard, has a good barrel percentage, good exit velocities, and they think there's something there they could possibly work with. And he didn't say, you know, this was a slam dunk signing, but that's just what he figured out was the case when uh, he saw the deal come through. And maybe with Ryan Fuller getting promoted up to the Major League squad now, they're targeting guys like that to see if he can do what he did for Kyle Stowers and company with uh, some major league veterans. And, and I think Odor, he's going to be more of like the, this year's, I can't remember names today. <laughs> the second baseman that we uh, signed last off season, that got cut in spring training. I think he's going to be this year's guy that just comes in he's going to get a look in spring training. He's making the league minimum. So he can maybe get a shot at second base, third base, just a bench player. So, I don't think there's too many expectations, but maybe if you catch lightning in a bottle, he could be a decent option until guys are ready to come up. Yeah, I mean, if he makes the roster and you give him a full season of at-bats, if he could hit like 240 or 250 with 20 or more home runs for $600,000, like, sure, I'll take that. Um, while playing decent defense as well, I know the advanced metrics, like some love him, some really hate him. Uh, which again is just another sign like we can't really have any major takeaways from those advanced metrics that the public has available to us. But I mean, if he can hit those numbers, I think he can be a fine platoon option, utility option, bridge option until, you know, Jordan Westberg and Terran Vavra, they're not far away from the big leagues, hopefully holding down second base. Uh, if he gets cut, if he gets cut, it's whatever, doesn't cost the Orioles that much. Um, I mean, he's competition for like Jorge Mateo and uh, you know, Jemai Jones. You know, God knows we need to see a lot more from Jemiah Jones next year, even though you know that's a massive jump, AAA to the big leagues now. I'm not writing Jemiah Jones off at all, but, um, you know, we got to see something out of him for next year. And hopefully this maybe this pushes Jemiah Jones. I don't know. But I'm kind of more concerned about, you know, what's available as far as shortstops go, because Odor is not that shortstop. And I know a lot of Orioles fans really like Ramon Arias. I do, too. Uh, but do you want to see Arias as the full-time shortstop on this roster next year, or would you prefer to see him at second base? But then if that's the case, who are your options at shortstop now? I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know what the shortstop market's going to look like because there was a report over the weekend that Freddie Galvis was close to signing an agreement with the team in Japan, and I just wonder if more players are going to go that route if the lockout persists, and would it be harder to get someone that's in that Jose Iglesias, Freddie Galvis tier. 
And I would rather have Arias at second base than shortstop, but he does offer you a little bit of versatility that if you want to plug him in at third, you could. Um, I will say this for Odor. Looking at the in-house options right now, if the Orioles don't do anything with shortstop or third, and Arias ends up in one of those positions, I would probably take Odor at second base to start the year, not throughout the whole year, but to start the year over Demai Jones. Uh, certainly over Taron Vavra because he needs more development time. Jordan Westbrook's not ready yet. So if Odor is your starting primary second baseman through the end of June and he hits 200 with good power, probably call that a win at the league minimum. Yeah, and his defensive numbers were really good last year. If you look on uh, Baseball Savant, outs above average, he's basically going to be a better version of Pat Vileka, I guess, or the ideal version of Pat Vileka maybe which can't get enough of that. So, And I was thinking of Yolmer Sanchez before. There you go. Just to set the record straight. You know, you got to do that. Yeah, I guess I would see, like, how the shortstop situation plays out because, you know, if if more people like Galvis and hit that type of player follow suit, then, I mean, that pool's going to shrink, obviously. Teams are still looking for shortstops. Are, is that going to price the Orioles out of that market? Probably. Uh we know they need a catcher. We know they need probably, hopefully, more pitching. So is that going to price them out of the shortstop market? Uh, I'd imagine it would. And then, like, are, are Orioles fans going to be happy with trotting out, you know, first base, Trey Mancini, Ryan Mountcastle, slot, first base, last DH, second base, Odor, shortstop, Urias, third base, uh, Gutierrez, uh, platoon with somebody. Uh, are, are Orioles fans going to be uh, happy with that uh, infield scenario if that's the way it uh, plays out? I believe they will not. <laughs> No, they will not. Would that help the pitchers even? Like, that's my concern. I mean, if you got Gutierrez and Odor both hitting 200 but playing really good defense, are we okay with that for a couple of weeks? I mean, I don't know. I'm interested <laughs> hey, to see how maybe. all that shakes up. Yeah, I don't think this precludes us from signing anyone else at their base or shortstop. I think this is kind of – he'll probably make it through the offseason on the 40-man roster just because there's a lot of other guys that could go earlier, but – you could still sign Kyle Seeger and easily fit uh, him into this roster. I want to put this out there about Odor offensively because it sort of seems like it's almost a guarantee that if someone hits from the left side and they have some power, that they're going to hit well at Camden Yards. That was kind of what we expected with Freddie Galvis, and for the most part, that's what played out when Galvis hit from the left side as a switch hitter uh, at Camden Yards last year. He hit the ball pretty well, showed a little bit of power. What's interesting, though, is you could really say the same thing of Yankee Stadium. And Rugnet Odor's career numbers at Yankee Stadium, the bulk of which were accumulated last year, are terrible. Um, his numbers at Candom Yards aren't bad, but we're talking about 24 games, an 815 OPS, two homers. So do you think that that's a guarantee that you could put Odor out there, and even if he struggles to hit 200, that you're still going to get, you know, average – power at least in terms of home run numbers out of him yeah i think he's proven now that he's going to hit home runs he might not he might hit 180 to get there but he'll hit 20 30 home runs over the course of a full season so yeah he's good for that at least and if he hits some home runs and plays solid defense that's at least good enough for first few months of the season and I would almost like take those stats at Camden Yards. Like he was facing Orioles pitching last year, so that also plays a role into it. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the least I could say here, and I know like Orioles fans don't want to hear this. They're tired. They want actual guys who are going to make a difference. And some of those guys could still join the roster, like trades as well. I think we had a year of full season minor league baseball now. The Orioles have a much better picture of who these prospects are, where they fit in the system, what their projections are. Um, so we could still see some trades too after this lockout. As much as I'm sure we'd hate to see a lot of these guys go, I mean, these prospects are assets. You move these to make the major league product better. Um, yeah, at least Odor and Lyles are established, proven veterans who have remained relatively healthy across their entire career. Odor, I'm looking now, is like 145, 129, 162, 150. I mean, this guy plays a lot and doesn't get hurt. Neither does Lyles. Uh, it's not your Matt Harvey's who haven't played in three years. It's not Felix Hernandez who's out. It's not, you know, Andy Hechevaria, whatever his name is, you know, who's going to hit 200 with three home runs for you. Um so at least we can say that. I mean, to put as positively as possible, I guess. Yeah, I think the trade market, you know, and this is something we could probably revisit after the lockout, but the trade market does yield some possibilities. Like you had the Marlins, who were starting to really accumulate a lot of major league hitters with some expendable players on their roster now, guys like Brian Anderson, who we sort of speculated about a few months ago as a possible target for the Orioles because Stephen Loftus over at the warehouse um, – part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio, when he was on with Chris Stoner and Matt Corey, he brought up Anderson's name as a possible trade target. So somebody like that could still be a fit at third base, and I don't think the Wilds or Odor signings would preclude that. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. There's still plenty of uh, plenty of ways to improve the talent on the roster, that's for sure. Yeah, and we'll see how those things play out as we get out of the lockout. Uh, we do have some injury news down in the minor leagues that uh, came out today. The Orioles announced that Reed Trimble, uh, an outfielder chosen in last year's draft, uh, had a labrum repair last week in his left shoulder, which is his non-throwing shoulder. He's not expected to return to play for at least six to nine months. So at that rate, you're looking probably about early June return being the best case scenario for Trimble. Uh, his offensive numbers were not great last year, right after the draft, but still the expectation was that Trimble was, you know, a good pick for the Orioles, possibly out of southern Mississippi, <clears throat> excuse me, southern Mississippi, and that he probably would have been somewhere in Aberdeen's outfield to start next year if he was healthy, but the injury here is going to set him back a little bit. So, Nick, I'll just start with your reaction here. Um, Obviously, bad news about Trimble with the injury. And although this doesn't have to be a major setback, it is still going to keep him off the field for a little while next year. Yeah, this is a major bummer. I mean, Trimble really didn't get a, a lot of opportunity to get quality playing time uh, last year. I believe he was the one that missed a big chunk of time too, but I don't believe that was injury related. I think the designation, at least on the uh, Delmarva roster, was something of the effect of like a personal matter. Uh, so, when he was on the field, though, the numbers, like you mentioned, were kind of underwhelming. Um, my only concern is that he's kind of, you know, this more raw prospect. He does that have that high ceiling, but he's a younger raw prospect from a smaller school in southern Mississippi or that Conference USA or something. So, like, I was looking forward to see what he could do in 2022 after full offseason. Now, I mean, there is also a good chance that, you know, you mentioned June, early July being best case scenario. There's a chance he doesn't play at all next year. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like Heston Kerstad who has this long track record of success against high level competition. He's a high floor, safer prospect as safe as you can talk about you know, draft picks, but, um, Reed Trimble is not that. So that's, that's my only concern. Um, but 
I guess we just have to wait a little longer for answers as far as who is retrimble as a prospect. And hopefully the recovery is a uh, good and quick. Yeah. I mean, the good news is long-term it's his non-throwing shoulder. So hopefully it's doesn't affect him too much in the long-term, but short-term. Yeah. It sucks that he had to wait this long to get the surgery and that kind of puts him at the risk of missing all of next season, or at least a big chunk of it. I'm guessing you can explain his struggles a little bit from maybe he was dealing with this. And then I believe he was at fall instructs so maybe he was trying to rehab through it. And they just finally decided that it, it just had to be done with a uh, surgery. So unfortunate, but that's why we draft 10 outfielders a year for this situation. Yeah. Trimble was the 65th overall pick in last year's draft um, and was a second rounder for the Orioles. I think, you know, even with the numbers that he put up at Delmarva last year, where he did struggle a little bit, the expectations were still fairly high for him. You know, I know Eric Longenhagen at Fangrass is one of the evaluators that's pretty high on Trimble. I think to Nick's point, though, I think you're right that he is a raw prospect coming out of Southern Mississippi, which is a smaller school. We know that there is a good athletic base there with Trimble, but the Orioles and Trimble are also going to have some work to do to sort of put that together and to get him to the point where you could look at him, I think, as, you know, a viable major leaguer in the near term. Um, so this is, oh, you know, a bit disappointing in that he was a raw prospect that we were hoping could really put some things together in 2022. And now he's going to miss, you know, at least a few months, if not more. Yeah. And I just looked up that uh, report again from Longenhagen. I mean, he was ranked 44th on the Fangraphs big board of draft prospects last year, which is pretty solid, but there's a note in there that, he was a draft eligible sophomore, I believe, as well. So he missed uh, 2020, basically, because of, of the pandemic. And now he's missing. That's a key, you know, his second season at Southern Miss. He missed that because of the pandemic. And now he's missing his what was supposed to be his first full season of pro baseball. And it's just a lot of bad luck, bad timing there for him, which, you know, isn't his fault. But, I mean, how much is this going to set him back is, is my concern. But he's young. He's young. So he has that going for him. Yeah, that is a good point that, you know, we drafted him young. So basically it'll be like he went back to college for a year and then we drafted him the next year. And yeah, it's pretty key development time that he's going to miss. But hopefully, you know, the Orioles can figure out a plan for him on how to maybe he can do some learning without actually having to physically swing the bat and that kind of thing. But now the Aberdeen outfield looks like Colton Cowser, Dante Williams, Billy Cook and uh, John Rhodes. Still a pretty solid outfield. Yep. So best of luck to Reed and his recovery. We'll be rooting for him here. Hopefully he gets back on the field uh, as soon as possible. We'll move on now, though, to something that I mentioned at the top of the show, which is the Rule 5 draft and how that has been affected by the lockout. The Major League phase of the Rule 5 draft, which is what you know we've spent a considerable amount of time discussing this offseason with the expectation that it's going to take place at some point, is on hold um, indefinitely. So we'll see at some point if that's uh, rescheduled later in the offseason. But the minor league phase is still going to move forward. Now, anybody whose name is called Thursday in the minor league phase is not going to be a household name as far as prospects go. They're probably not going to see the major leagues next year or maybe even ever in the Orioles farm system. But there is still an opportunity to get some depth added into your organization. The Orioles do have a few notable players in their farm system that – don't rank his top 50 prospects for us, but there are guys we've talked about on this show before, like Ignacio Feliz, Christopher Cespedes, were minor league phase rule five picks. So there is still 
some level of interest. And while we haven't had as much of an opportunity as, you know, as much of an opportunity to look into the minor league phase of the draft, uh, still something we're going to have our, our eye on later this week. So, Bob, um, while we might not know a lot of the names that are out there and who the Orioles could target, what are you kind of expecting to see out of the minor league phase of the draft? Honestly, I'm more curious about who we could lose in that as more than who we could gain. I mean, I think last time we got Chris Hudgens, you know, Ignacio Feliz, like you said, there's definitely some interesting names that you could get for organizational filler that maybe they have a little bit of upside that you could catch lightning in a bottle, but we're a pretty deep farm system right now. And there's only so many guys you can protect. I'm just curious. I'm hoping we don't lose anyone too interesting on Thursday. Yeah. I know baseball America put out the piece today of their MILB uh, rule five primer, which I joked about on Twitter. We were going to put out like a top 50 names. No, um, I didn't have time to put that together. Uh, Baseball America did have a list. I haven't looked at it, though. If anybody watching live took a look, and if there are any Orioles on that list, uh, let us know in the comments there. But um, I am definitely worried about who the Orioles lose. But you mentioned last year we drafted three guys, and Chris Hudgens provided good depth. He's a good defensive catcher. Um, Offense was either like home run or bust with him, but he was a really good defensive catcher that helped out in Bowie. And in Norfolk, caught a significant number of games. That's valuable depth. Uh, Ignacio Feliz was a guy who we were all super high on in Delmarva, got promoted to Aberdeen, and it all just seemed to kind of fall apart there for him. But he's still a young, exciting arm. Uh, and then Ricky Ramirez was the other one. An interesting reliever. I mean, he was kind of bad at the beginning of the year. I think he started late because of an injury. But I mean, he was okay to end the year. Interesting, like slider, swinging a slider there. But that's who you're going to target. It's pitching. Uh, I think guys that maybe you like their fastball traits, maybe you're going to look these guys up. You're going to see who they drafted. Check out the Twitter account. I'm off that day. You can, we're going to keep you guys updated. Don't worry. Um, you're going to look up their, like their stats or baseball reference page or whatever. And the stats might look kind of pretty bad. You're like, who the heck is this guy? It's like you said, it's not a household name. You're not going to know who they are. The stats may not be too impressive, but with pitchers, it's going to be like fastball traits you like, and maybe they have a, a unique or really good slider, a quality slider, a two-pitch guy you can put in the bullpen uh, and maybe work with. That's who you want. I think Baseball America also mentioned like catchers are also pretty popular, but I know the Orioles signed a catcher the other day to a minor league deal, so probably won't see another catcher there, but I'm interested to see. It's fun for us because it gives us something else to talk about at least. Yeah. Yeah, and I think with hitters, there's also going to be some traits they look for. You know, do they have any sort of batted ball data to indicate, you know, exit velocity? That's one of the things we'd heard about with Christopher Cespedes was that the exit velocity data with him has generally been pretty good. So do they have a high walk rate? Is their batted ball data good? I And, you know, I think another point, too, is do they offer some defensive versatility? Because we know that, you know, I think pretty much every organization values versatility to some extent, but it seems like under – Michael Elias, the Orioles have sort of taken a renewed focus on versatility, especially versatility up the middle. So I would think, that generally speaking, those are the kind of players they could target. And, you know, although I think the minor league catching depth is decent right now, uh, probably never hurts to have too much in that area. Yeah, I mean, defensive versatility and giant relief pitchers. That's what Michael Elias does. So let's go. Yeah, I'm, it's exciting. It's going to give us something to talk about, like I mentioned. Um, but 
Yeah, I don't know. I am afraid. I wish there was a way. Uh, somebody told me today that the list of who is going to be available, or at least who is protected. Um, I haven't gone through and looked at who's available from the Orioles side of things, done the math and all of that to figure out who the Orioles could lose. But I was anticipating maybe Norfolk's roster being updated because I know if you are added that you can protect what 38 players you can put on your AAA roster to protect them. So anyone on Norfolk's roster is good. Uh, they're safe. But um, I was told today by somebody that that information is not going to become publicly available before Thursday. So we're kind of left in the dark and it's just kind of hope and pray and wait and see what happens Thursday at two o'clock, I guess. Hopefully we don't lose Willian. That's all I'm worried about. <laughs> so here's a question from Addy on YouTube. If the salary floor is implemented and the Orioles have to spend an additional 30 to 45 million, who would they target? Kyle Seager to cover at least a third of that difference. Bob, I know that you're a huge proponent of Kyle Seager to the Orioles. I think you not only are driving that bandwagon, you actually built it. So I'll let you start with this question. Uh, first, I see what you did there, Adi. Uh, at least a third of that difference. I, I see what you did there. Uh, I would you go with uh, Michael Pineda, you know, sign another good starting pitching option or at least solid starting pitching option. It doesn't have to be, you know, 15 million a year. Get like a, a Michael Pineda. Maybe she's, I don't know if you got 20 million to play with convince Buster Percy to come out of retirement. Uh, no, I don't know. I would sign one or two more starting pitchers, maybe a reliever. And then of course, Cal Seeger for their base. I mean, I've already bought his Jersey, so it's only a matter of time. Not going to be mad at Seager. Uh, they need a third baseman for sure. Uh, I love Michael Pineda. Um, I would agree with that as well. I don't imagine to be a catcher, um, but yeah, bring up Pineda. And I mean, if you want to, if you have to throw some extra money, uh, at you know Zach Davies, I know that's a name we've mentioned before. Could be interesting. I don't know uh, if you like soft tossing righties. He's a righty, right? I think. Um, yeah, so maybe him. Um, you can bring those guys in. You you could definitely afford to bring in two solid major league veterans, better than Jordan Lyles, uh, that are going to give you good innings and be productive and actually advance the starting rotation. Uh, so that would be interesting. Uh, I wouldn't be mad at that. Um, uh, there's a shortstop. I can't remember his name. Correa or something. Is he signed? I don't know. You could bring him in. I don't know. There's guys like that. I don't know how much he would take. What, 50 million, 40 million? Uh, bring him in. I don't know. Per year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that if there is a salary floor implemented, and I have another question about this that I'll save um, for after my answer, but I think if there is a salary floor implemented. You could see some guys like Michael Pineda. I would throw Danny Duffy's name into the mix too as another starter that the Orioles could take a look at. Um, Zach Davies. And then, you know, Seeger, I think I would be more concerned about the years of commitment than I would the annual salary. Like, do I really want to sign Kyle Seeger to a three or four year deal? No. But if I could get him on a two year deal for, you know, say somewhere in that 25 to 30 million range, I would take that, knowing that it's probably going to take you know, another two years before you have that option ready to play third base out of the farm system. And this is actually the next point I was going to lead into and Sim Contribute just commented on it here, which is that the salary floor, if it is implemented um, as a result of the CBA, could end up being gradual. In fact, it may very well likely be gradual because there are teams like the Orioles, the Pirates, the Guardians, the A's, who are projected to carry pretty low payrolls in 2022 that um, would have to spend, or in the A's case, perhaps plan on retaining more players than originally planned to get to that salary floor. 
So I guess what I'll – and I'll start with Nick on this. Do you think that we end up with a salary floor of some sort on the other side of this uh, CBA negotiation? If so, do you think that it has a bigger impact right away in planning for the 2022 season? Or do you think it's going to have maybe a slight effect for 2022 but then a larger one in 2023? I, I could see the gradual implementation because, I mean, I feel like that's one of the bigger points. I mean, I haven't really dove into you know, what the arguments have been over the last couple of days. Um, I don't really know if we've gotten much public information uh, about negotiations or what's going on or reports of what sides are offering. But I would imagine one of the bigger things that they want to focus on is preventing teams like the Orioles. I know that's been, a, a, a again, go figure, a hot topic among you know, writers is going after the Orioles. This is why we're in this lockout because the Orioles don't want to spend money. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, I could see it being gradual, uh, but then even then, you know, you can still bring in a decent starting pitching help uh, to help out this roster and spend a little bit more money. Uh, but I'd imagine that would probably be one of the bigger wins for, you know, the MLB side of things in this argument. Yeah. I personally don't think there's going to be like a hard salary floor, hard cap, just like I don't think there's, ever going to be a hard salary cap i think it'll be a it'll be a soft salary floor if there's something like that maybe where you have to i don't even know how that would work but i I don't think it's going to be like you have to spend this much money i think it'll be you know kind of just like nudging you in the right direction hopefully but i have no idea another thing that we're probably going to see the orioles payroll move up a little bit is that they have tendered contracts to trey mancini John Means and Tanner Scott, but have not come to terms yet. So we don't know what the three of them are going to earn. You have to figure that Means and Mancini are at least lined up for substantial raises. Scott's going to get a pretty sizable one as well. So assuming, and this is not something we should really, you know, absolutely count on, I think, but if the Orioles come to terms with all three and carry them on their opening day roster uh, without trading them, between now and the start of the season, that's going to move the payroll up too. But they're still going to have to round out with some free agents if they pursue, uh, if they end up with some sort of salary for it. And they could also, that could force them to say, all right, we're going to negotiate a longer term deal with John Means. Maybe that's when a John Means extension gets signed. So then you're you're bumping up the payroll even more there. uh, So you don't have to go out and sign more free agents uh, if you want to look at it that way. But I mean, that could be an option or even sign a Trey Mancini to a small extension. Uh, and that could significantly boost the payroll there by bringing both those, signing both of those guys long-term. But I think Orioles fans would, would at least be happy uh, if both those guys were signed to longer-term deals. So maybe it would uh, soften the blow a little bit. Maybe if Jordan Lyles is the top pitcher free agent, the Orioles sign. Uh, but you got Means and Mancini locked down. Uh, I don't know. I'm interested to see how all this plays out, but I, like I said earlier, I have a feeling it's going to rub up pretty close to spring training before we get anything. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And yeah, I, I think it's going to be like 12 million or so for the three of those guys once uh, their contracts are signed. So, and we know that the Adley Rutschman 12 year contract extension is not going to really affect next year's salary too much. So you're going to have to do some, I'd love to see means extended. I've been saying that for a while too. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure they could still trade uh, Mancini before they have to pay him. So we'll see. We dodged one bullet with Mancini. They tendered him a contract. Now let's see if they actually uh, bring him in to camp next year. Yeah. And I know we talked about this before too, but if there is that salary floor, I would almost wonder if Elias would instead go the route of 
buying prospects. Uh, you know, like John Muley mentioned when he was on, you know, taking one of those big contracts uh, from another team and getting good prospects in return. That could be a way that they increase that uh, payroll as well. Yeah, I would be interested to see that approach. And I think even without a salary floor, that is something the Orioles should look at doing this offseason. You know, try to find a trade where you maybe have to take on a bad contract for a year or two, but you stabilize some positions at major league level that is really unsettled and you get a prospect back in return. So Eric Hosmer, let's go. Eric Hosmer. <laughs> yeah. Ground ball machine. Let's Miguel go. Cabrera. <laughs> I wouldn't even if, if they did that. Eric Hosmer is the one name that I think the, I know the Padres desperately want to get rid of Eric Hosmer. Uh, and I think a lot of that is clubhouse attitude driven as well, uh, not just the big contract. But uh, there could be an opportunity to increase the rotation there. Like go after a pitcher with a bad contract, get a good prospect in return. That's a win win deal. I would love if the Orioles were able to do that. But would Eric Hosmer in an Orioles uniform be Chris Davis in an Orioles uniform except most at bats and in a ground out to the second baseman rather than a strikeout? You'd have to give him number 19, I guess. And uh, no, I would just release him immediately if I was going <laughs> to trade for him and then just eat that money. Let it be on the books, but not in the clubhouse. Yeah. From, from what I know, from what I've heard at least is that uh, Hosmer has his own hitting coach uh, and it would not be Ryan Fuller. Uh, it would be his brother, apparently, who uh, never played uh, Major League Baseball and he refuses to change that stance. So I don't think that'd be a, a great fit in Baltimore. Nah, he's not going to treat our boy Ryan Fuller like that. And we know you need experienced veterans to be hitting coaches. So his brother's not going to work. <laughs> so I do want to pivot back to the the decision to tender contracts because that's something we talked about in our last show and we can might as well follow up with it here the Orioles faced decisions before last week's non-tender deadline on six players none of the six were non-tendered we thought that five of the six probably would be but that Paul Fry seemed likely to end up being non-tendered ultimately the Orioles agreed to a contract with Fry for about eight I think it was eight hundred thousand dollars which is about 300000 less, I believe, than what MLB trade rumors had projected him to earn in arbitration. So the Orioles, you know, save that cost a little bit, but also bring Fry back after a season that saw him have very good first three, three and a half months and then really struggle the rest of the way. So just looking at those decisions across the board, did anything surprise you guys? And I'll start with Nick. No, I mean... I thought Fry was going to be gone for sure, but like you look at this, the 40 man roster right now. And I mean, what bullpen do you really have? I mean, you got Tyler Wells, Dylan Tate, Cole Sulcer for sure. Um, and then you got the waiver claims, Perez and Baker. Kresge was just released. Uh, Crable could be a guy that's jettisoned off the 40 man pretty soon. Hopefully Jorge Lopez is in the bullpen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, looking back now, I guess I imagine bringing Paul Fry back doesn't hurt at all. Um, is you you would hope Paul Fry would be better than like a Siono Perez or Brian Baker who they claimed off waivers. Uh, that would be huge, but yeah, nothing surprising there for me. No, especially once it was announced that they got him for less than he was predicted to make in arbitration. It seemed like a pretty decent no-brainer. And I saw one stat that was pretty crazy that in his last 27 appearances against the Rays, he had like a astronomically high ERA and then against everyone else it was like 2.97 and then even in his AAA numbers if you look at he when he pitched against Durham he had an astronomically high ERA against everyone else it was zero so, so the Rays got his number as long as we just 
leave him uh, on the bench against uh, the Rays. He should be pretty good next year. The, the, the Durham note is very interesting because I did not know that. I did not look into that. And if that's true, then that is amazing. Uh, it's short sample size, but it is true. <laughs> Still, I, I think that is amazing. Yeah, just don't pitch it against Tampa Bay at all. And all right, maybe we might have something that Paul Frank <laughs> He'll make me well, eat my words, which uh, I hope he does. Eat I your words. <laughs> Durham had a really good team last year. Um, and I, it would have been interesting to me to see Durham almost like in a tournament with like maybe the eight worst teams in the league and the majors to see who would have won that. But um, to knock around a uh, major leaguer like that is uh, pretty impressive for a triple-A lineup. Yeah. yeah, maybe they just decided, let's just not swing at this guy's pitches and see what happens. So those were the moves there. I think the one that made me the happiest because it was one that seemed to be on the bubble a little bit was the decision to bring Jorge Lopez back. Uh, I think that he's going to fit into that Orioles bullpen nicely next year if that is indeed the path they choose for him. And, um, you know, Nick, you actually touched on this during your piece at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. The signing of Lyles does make it easier to make decisions like just put Jorge Lopez in the bullpen and don't put him in the rotation just because you have to. Yeah, I'm trying to find. Yeah, I it was only eight innings you had. Um, I was going to write a little bit more about Jorge Lopez in another piece, but he only had eight and a third innings in relief before the injury. But it was a 2.16 ERA, like a batting average against of less than 200, 10 strikeouts, two walks, two earned runs. I mean, pretty solid in relief. I know, and there was one instance, it was against the Angels. I wrote this and then I deleted all of it. Uh, but it was against the Angels. He came out firing like two miles an hour. He was averaging like a mile and a half, almost two miles an hour faster uh, on his fastball than he did the rest of the season. And it was like two shutout innings. It was a game the Orioles won like 13, 14 to one. Uh, one of those rare good games there. But Lopez just came out firing in that bullpen. And if you can get that Jorge Lopez throwing uh, another an additional mile or two faster on that fastball, reaching maybe he averages 97 miles an hour on that fastball now. He's got good secondaries. Uh, Curveball is a really good pitch. So, I mean, if if you get that Jorge Lopez attacking guys out of the bullpen for one or two innings, I think he could be really good. I'm not the first person to say that, but I really hope they just fully stick him in the bullpen. There should be a rule next year. He is not allowed to pitch more than one inning unless it's an absolute emergency. Just come in, let it eat for an inning, throw it as hard as he can, mix in some breaking balls, and and see what he can do because we've seen enough when he pitches multiple innings or especially when he starts a game. So I've seen enough, but at one and a half million, if he can turn into a like a Tommy Hunter type of decent uh, transition reliever, then that'll be worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So that about does it for our show this week. And we'll be back next week with a look at the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft, plus any other news that pops up uh, between now and next Monday. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Birds. Also, be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com because not only do we have Nick's great piece on Jordan Wiles, but we also have a lot of other good content on there, including on the Ravens, college sports, some high school sports as well. Be sure to join the message board and hop on and discuss and to uh, talk with other members of the community, including our readers as well as writers over at Baltimore Sports and Life. And for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spreden. You've been listening to On the Birds. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.